Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 13 and verse 10 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17 is our passage today. That passage can be found on page 872. If you are using a church Bible, page 872. Luke 13 and verse 10. Before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, as we come before your word, would you, by the Spirit, uh, show us just how much it is that you love us? Would you convict our hearts of uh, the glory, the worth, the beauty of Jesus? Um, soften within us what may have become hard over the years. Uh, may this message be clear, uh, accurate, and powerful by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We come now to a text which contains a miracle account, uh, which may feel a little bit out of place. It was actually in Luke's earlier chapters that there were healings of various diseases, the cleansing of the leper, making the paralytic to walk. Uh, these were accounts of Jesus' demonstrable power, which only seemed to ascend. He heals the centurion's servant without even being there. He just says it, and it happens. He raises a young man from the dead that's not healing from an illness, but lifting from death to life. He calms a boat-breaking storm with a single phrase showing that he has power over the forces of nature. He feeds 5,000-plus from a meal that should really only be able to feed one person, etc., etc. These accounts authenticated the person of Jesus and his identity as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, in remarkably undeniable ways, and they were laid out for us back to back to back in Luke's earlier chapters. But in these last few chapters, it's been mostly teaching, discipleship, uh, warnings to the crowd, no miracles. But these last few sections really ramping it up, this, this language confrontation from Jesus, that the people can predict the weather, but they can't recognize the importance of Jesus right in front of them. As you guys can talk about death, other people's deaths, but you won't contemplate your own and, and repent. Jesus compares the people of Israel to a fig tree without any figs that they look and act a certain way, but there's no spiritual fruit within them. And that judgment is coming, even though God's been patient and has done everything for them to believe. And then it's here that we encounter this miracle in the flow of Luke's narrative. Uh, the miracle in our text is not merely to authenticate who Jesus is, but to incriminate the religious people of the day who refuse to see in Jesus what they're supposed to see in Jesus. This miracle account contains a prime example of a leafy tree with nothing under the leaves. All show and no-go religion. This is the, for instance, the example, the illustration in all of its vibrant color of how the religious leadership of Israel had not repented, which is why I think this miracle and the next one following come into the narrative here at this point. And so there is in this passage a case against the religious ones and at the same time a case for the broken ones. We have self-righteousness condemned and the one least expected to be blessed this person is blessed and set free to worship in spirit and in truth. Look with me in verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Oh, we are here introduced to a woman who most would think is least expected to be blessed by God. Her life has been one of great misery. Uh, but we have here in this woman also 
a picture of faithfulness in the midst of Satan's cruelty and a priority of worship even when her circumstances are screaming at her to quit already. First, we have this woman, a visual of Satan's cruelty. You know, her condition here is not only physical, it's, it's also spiritual. And we see that in verse 16 where Jesus declares that she had been bound by Satan for 18 years. And so this is not merely a physiological problem, but this is also not merely a spiritual problem either. You know, many of our own spiritual issues are not always readily apparent and are instead concealed from the eyes of the people around us for better or for worse. We can be filled with greed and no one knows, enslaved to lust privately, envy, bitterness, self-pity, have our thoughts be primarily self-centered. We can whisper gossip in private places, and we can keep all of these things concealed because there's no physical manifestation of it. But this woman is bent in half physically as a result of what had happened spiritually, unable to straighten herself up, unable to look at someone at eye level, incapable of walking regularly, and everyone could see that something was wrong with her as her body had been severely deformed. Everywhere she went, people would stare. Little kids who didn't know any better would whisper and giggle. She could easily be lost in a crowd being at half the height of normal adults. And she hadn't been born like this. It was her reality for 18 of her years, and so she did have memory of life before this malady, and she knew the contrast in her own mind of what things were like before and what things had been like now for almost two decades. That recollection of better days could only serve to deepen her current pain. It's one thing to have been blind from birth. It's another to have sight taken from you. And here, similarly, it's one thing to suffer like this and another to remember the time when you didn't. 18 years is a, is a long time, 2005, that's 18 years ago. And to make things worse, the prevailing sentiment of the day when someone suffered to this degree was that this person must have done something really evil, must have harbored something very wicked within the heart to deserve an existence like this one. Jesus sensed this sentiment in the beginning of chapter 13, last Sunday's passage. What about the Galileans who died in the gruesome way? The tower at Siloam who fell on the 18, weren't they worse sinners than the rest of us? Dot, 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 question mark, because bad things only happen to bad people. What made things worse for this woman in our verses is that everyone would stare, and whatever compassion, mercy, kindness they might have naturally felt in their heart in response to such a miserable sight would be vanquished by the prevailing theology of the day that this is really all her own fault. She made her bed, and now she must lay in that bed, this crippling position being a poetic form of divine justice. 18 years, and with almost any kind of tragedy, the amount of pity and compassion that people do have, uh, it grows down drastically over time. The first few weeks, an outpouring of help from the people who do love you and don't blame you. The months after that, less and less, and then the years come and go, and what initially seemed to move so many people emotionally, it begins to fade more and more, and what pains this woman no longer pains the people around her. And so we have a very uh, graphic visual of Satan's cruelty portrayed in, a, in a, a way in this poor woman's condition, and we need to know that whatever the devil wants to tempt you with today, this is his heart for you. Don't believe his lies. And yet, where do we find this woman on the Sabbath day? We find her in the synagogue to worship her God and to listen to the scriptures being expounded. We have here in these verses a picture of humble faithfulness in the midst of Satan's cruelty. 
And she's rightfully called by Jesus' very own lips in verse 16, a daughter of Abraham. And, and I don't think that's a, a racial or a national thing primarily. I think there's this heritage of real, genuine faith, even though she doesn't quite know all of what God is doing. This is a woman who still believes and clings to her God and trust. One of the things around her, like Job's wife, would preach to her, just curse God and die. But like Job, there is also a limit to what Satan can do, which is the same limit Satan can do to any of us, by permission of a sovereign God who does love us. Listen to Charles Spurgeon on this limit. Satan had bound this woman, but he had not killed her. He might bend her towards the grave, but he could not bend her into it. Even so, the devil cannot destroy you, O child of God. He can smite you, but he cannot slay you. He worries those whom he cannot destroy and feels a malicious joy in so doing. He knows there is no hope of your destruction, for you are beyond the shot of his gun. But if he cannot wound you with a shot, he will frighten you with a powder if he can. If he cannot slay, he will bind as if for the slaughter, and he knows how to make a poor soul feel a thousand deaths in fearing one but all this while, Satan was quite unable to touch this poor woman as to her true standing. She was a daughter of Abraham 18 years before when the devil first attacked, and she was a daughter of Abraham 18 years afterwards when that fiend had done his worst. There is a limit to what the devil can do, brothers and sisters. And it's the same for all of us who are his. Our names are written on Christ's hands, and none can erase it. If you belong to Jesus, you can't be plucked out of those hands. The devil may bind you, but you're bound tighter still with the bonds of Christ's everlasting love, and he will hold you to the end. And so there is this strange beauty in this pain of faithfulness in the darkness and in the suffering that a hunchback bent over a woman of much misery and derision is found at church, so to speak, to worship her God in spite of all that Satan could do to her even though she has to basically crawl to get there. For a true worshiper loves to worship. There's almost nothing that can stop a true one from worshiping together with the people of God on the Sabbath day. Notice that if she hadn't come on this particular Sabbath, she might not have met with Christ there. And it's the same with all who miss the corporate gathering, that they are frequently missing opportunities of eternal significance and blessing and meeting with Jesus. Now, we're living in a day and an age where missing Sunday worship for almost any conceivable reason is readily accepted, uh, normalized, and not uh, a proof of the person's inward heart at all. Don't judge me. And people miss the worship of Yahweh with the people of Yahweh to watch nine-year-old kids try their best to put a ball into a hoop. Or watch grown men put a ball past the goal line while eating bags of chips. People miss because it's raining or because they want to rest up for the real deal, which is life when Monday morning comes rolling around. And I think if anyone today knew of this woman's existence and felt her pain, I mean, she can't even stand up. I think a lot of us would excuse her from the regular attendance uh, currently, but, but for her, it's not. It is not an issue of, I have to. It's an issue of, I want to. And brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, those who want to worship God, they will. And those who do not, will not. It's really almost that simple. We are in here what we do out there. And many would rather use this time for a personal hobby or more work and will shout legalism at anyone who would object. And so it is that even when they are here, they're weary during it and happy when it's all over. There's no heart for worship. 
no delight in it. I mean, this woman here stands as a testimony. Uh, Ed Berg, you guys know Ed. His services were here last Saturday. He's now at home with the Lord. But you know him, and no matter how long it took and how much time he had to spend in the bathroom, he came. And he would get up, get up with his walker and raise his hands to sing to his God. And he was the loudest amener when the pro- proclamation of the word of God was happening. And he's not alone. There's also many of our uh, kapuna who desire to be here where there is a will, there is a way, even when there are maladies. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says this very strongly. Let us never forget that our feelings about Sundays are sure tests of the state of our souls. The man who can find no pleasure in giving God one day in the week is manifestly unfit for heaven. Heaven itself is nothing but an eternal Sabbath. If we cannot enjoy a few hours in God's service once a week in this world, then it is plain that we could not enjoy an eternity in his service in the world to come. Happy are those who walk in the steps of the woman of whom we read today. They shall find Christ and a blessing while they live and find Christ and glory when they die. I really do think this is a very serious indicator of what happens within our heart. Now, this is not to condemn those who are in hospice and the like and who have serious debilitating conditions. That's not their purpose. But let's be real, 99% of the time, that's not the case. This is merely to state that we are in here, what we do out here, and where there is a will, there is a way, and the people who want to worship will worship, and those who do not will not. But one thing I also want you to notice is where Jesus is on the Sabbath day. In the midst of people wanting to trap him and trick him and scheme against him so that they can murder him, where do we find Jesus in our text? Sabbath after Sabbath and synagogue after synagogue, Jesus is preaching the word of God. Even in the face of rejection, even into a crowd of fig trees with no figs and unrepentant people sitting mere feet from the Son of God incarnate who will not respond to his words. No matter how many layers he spreads on top of previous teaching that they had already rejected, Jesus is still preaching. He is a faithful one, the word incarnate, who preaches the word and also exhibits a beautiful faithfulness in the midst of rejecting evil. And so there are here moving portraits of faithfulness in the midst of evil in this woman and in our Lord. But our Lord not only preaches in our text this morning, He does a mighty work of deliverance, which wells up from his deep heart of compassion upon the one most people think should be excluded from God's loving kindness. Verse 12, we continue. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. And Jesus here, he does a mighty work of deliverance, which wells from his deep heart of compassion upon the broken one, the crooked one, the one in whom has the most obvious marks of Satan's work. Notice how all the action verbs are coming from Jesus. And the object of his attention is upon the woman that everyone else had already written off. And all of this results in deep worship. Jesus saw her, even if she could so easily be lost in the crowd. He sees her. He takes notice of her, understands her, seeks her out. There's so much for us to understand in Jesus' searching gaze, especially in his compassion and in his mercy. And then Jesus calls her. She did not call first to him. There's no record of prayer from her, no request, no beseeching, no searching, no crying out at all. She doesn't have a group of friends like the paralytic to dig up a roof and carry her to Jesus. The impulse is not from her. 
The impulse is from him. He initiates. And then Jesus speaks to her. You are freed from your disability. 18 years of slavery, bondage, satanic oppression, pain, crookedness. You're freed. By Jesus' word, freedom is granted. But hearing is one thing and feeling it is another. And Jesus, the action is his again. He lays his hands on her as if to lift her up who has not been able to be lifted up. He takes hold of her and that word and that touch Power and vitality now come into her body and immediately, no physical therapy. I mean, 18 years, bones can fuse, muscles can atrophy, but immediately, no medicine, no therapy, no nothing. Immediately, she is made straight. And what is her response to it all? She didn't go running out the door to family and friends. I can stand up now. I'm back. I'm back. She didn't look for a mirror to check out her own body. No, her immediate response is to worship for the text says, and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. She glorified God. Notice that she also didn't proclaim, you know what, I'm here every Sunday. I earned this by my faithfulness. I did this. I named it. I claimed it. I believed and it happened. I had faith and I moved mountains. I, 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 I know when freedom occurs, there's only one who set me free and only one who should wear the crown and one who deserves all my worship and has earned all my praise. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Only one can have this glory for my freedom. Only one. I don't know if you remember the very first song you sang to God as a true believer and as a new Christian born again. I remember singing Shout to the Lord, which was a more popular song in 1996. 97. There were other new believers there too, ugly voices, that beautiful sound. And that kind of worship is the best sound in the world, I think, when it's real. Can you imagine the scene in the synagogue, the people who, this woman who people have known to be that woman, crooked, miserable, crawling her way into service. Can you imagine the sound on her lips as she glorified her God who had set her free? The lifting of Rand Zevin. My God did this. He did it all. He sought me. He healed me. He released me. And all I want to do is honor him and glorify him. What a parallel this narrative is to our own freedom experience and salvation. And I think that is intentional. And brothers and sisters, we were held captive, bent over, crooked, unable to look upward, less than half of what we were supposed to be marred, deformed, enslaved, the marks and works of Satan all over each of our lives and each of our hearts. The evidence is everywhere. And unlike this woman, we were not drawn to worship. I mean, how many of us were not only haters of God, but haters of each other as well? But Christ saw us. His gaze was upon us. Christ called us, and his call is effective. It creates something within each of our dead hearts, like when Jesus called Lazarus from the grave, though he had been dead for quite some time, the call, the call itself, enlivened something within him. And Christ's call awoke something within each of us who are believers. He saw us. He called us. He declared us free. He lifted us by his own hand. Talitha kumi, little girl, child, I say, arise. And we were lifted up to himself from death to life, for bound as we were by sin. Unable, incapable of lifting our own selves up, God is the one who has to do it all. And therefore, the Lord must have the glory of it all in the work of our salvation. 
and our forgiveness, our pardon, our, our regeneration. It doesn't take years of physical therapy or some severely long process. No, but in a moment, that load of sin, that back-breaking, soul-destroying burden is gone. It's all gone. As far as the east is from the west is what Pastor Dave read this morning. All of it washed whiter than the snow, the thing that enslaved us, the thing that weighed us down, bent us over, deformed us. We are declared justified. And we're ready to glorify the God who rescued us, even if some of us have been bound 18, 25, 40 years in a horrible unbelief. Jesus can save the worst of us in a single moment by his word and by his touch. And then we're made into lovers of God who want to love him with all of our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And while the reality of ongoing sanctification can be gradual with lots of ups and lots of downs, the fundamental change occurs in an instant. If you're a believer this morning, our, our confidence and glory is such that Jesus saw us, he called us, he declared us free, he laid his hands upon us, and he lifted us to himself, not because we first sought him, but because he first sought us. And our songs to him should be always like the very first one we ever sang with our new lips and our new heart. And so it is that our hope, even for the neighbors who do not know him yet, our hope for those who seem to be so far gone, we know that if Jesus could save one of us, he can save anyone. If the Lord can make one of us straight, he can straighten anyone. If Jesus could put a sweet song on our lips, he can make the most hardened one sing praises with all of their hearts as well because we have done nothing to earn this or deserve it. The flow of salvation, the flow of our freedom is from Jesus Christ to us and not the other way around. And this woman's response here, as she's free, there's no fear of what anyone thinks, no shame, no worrying. She is free to worship God in spirit and in truth, even though she was the one who everyone would least expect to receive this kind of blessing, which is a parable of sorts to our own salvation. And so Jesus does a mighty work of deliverance upon the one who is broken, upon the one who has the most obvious works of the devil, upon the one who people would least expect to receive God's compassion. But not everyone is filled with praise towards God. And the incrimination here is that sometimes the ones who most claim God are actually the ones furthest from him. Look at verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? We have in these verses uh, an equally graphic visual as a woman, but in a different way. Here we have the fig tree without any figs, all leaves, no fruit. Here's the one who can discern weather, but can't discern the importance of what's right in front of him. We have an incrimination of the predominant religion of the day, which is self-righteousness. While the woman is glorifying God in a way that only a free woman could, this synagogue ruler who is spiritually elite and put in charge of the local synagogue, overseeing the worship there. This synagogue ruler has no praise on his lips. He's indignant in his heart. He's mad. And there's no compassion within him for those who suffer, 
No mercy upon the afflicted. He is loveless, a legalist, self-righteous, because in his mind, the people who should receive blessing from God and be seen and be called and be blessed are the ones who stand straight and do right and have worked their way up to the top like me and not people like her. This is a religion that is compassionless and hard. And he finds no joy in what has just happened. When a crooked, broken woman with her face inches from the floor gets the Lord attention, call and care, where is the place for human achievement? What about people like me who don't need mercy, who don't need compassion? And therefore, he will not follow Jesus. And it's not because the evidence isn't there. This miracle is undeniable. 18 years, everyone knew. And this is why when people say, if I could only see a miracle, then I would believe. If I could see with my own eyes, it's just simply not true. Healing miracles don't change the human heart. And there are accounts of people who saw miracles and never bowed the knee to Jesus, filling the pages of the New Testament. This miracle is undeniable, although in his eyes, it's nothing. And notice that the synagogue ruler doesn't even challenge Jesus to his face. No, he talks to the people. And this is what a lot of people do who are all about themselves, not talk to the Lord nor to uh, the preacher or the elders. They whisper and try and persuade, and they rally people to their side and comment and distort on what it is that has happened. This synagogue ruler with his commentary is trying to make this beautiful portrait of salvation, freedom, compassion, and grace. He wants to make all of that whisper, whisper into a sinful act of Sabbath breaking. He's trying to make good into evil. Why? Because he didn't like it. He hates it, and therefore, he's trying to make her praises sung turn into fingernails on the chalkboard for everyone else. Why? Because this is an act of grace. It's unearned, and grace destroys everything that I stand for, and here it is that we have the ugliness of self-righteousness condemned. When a, when a crooked, suffering, broken person with the marks of the devil on them, when they see another exactly like them get freed, that means there's hope for me. There's joy. And this is why the salvation of others brings the highest joy to those who are truly saved. But when one doesn't think he is that crooked or marred or even sinful, when they see someone less than them get something for free, they get mad and they want it to stop, which is why they put so many additional rules and regulations upon the people by the time of the first century. If you do this, you move up one notch. And the more you do, the more notches you go up. And the higher you get, the more you can look down on all the people under you. That's the synagogue ruler, which is the opposite of the broken, bent-over woman who can only look up from the bottom. Jesus helps this misguided man and the people in that synagogue to see the hypocrisy of it all because even with all their rules and regulations, they still somehow had compassion on animals. On the Sabbath, they were allowed by their own tradition to lead them to water. That's not work. With all their burdens, they still had mercy on beasts. For how can these critters go 24 hours without sustenance? I mean, that would be heartless and cruel. And yet 18 years without freedom from Satan's cruelty... And this man right here, Mr. Synagogue Ruler, says in indignation, you should have come on a different day. And what if she did come on the next day? Would he be able to do anything for her? No, he can't. And his religion can't do a single thing for the broken and the needy. But he doesn't care for the broken and the needy. 
And Jesus is pointing his finger, you only pity animals and have tenderness for donkeys. And he's knocking yet on their hearts still. It's as if each phrase digs deeper. Each phrase is an appeal, a knock upon his very heart at the very same time. And not off this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day, the day God designed for the good of humanity to rest and to worship him. Each phrase and the synagogue ruler never responds. Who really is a Sabbath breaker? Who really has lost the heart of religion, even though he proclaims to be the religious elite? Which is why this synagogue ruler and those who think like him are hypocrites. Brothers and sisters, if anything, True religion is caring for people, especially those who are most broken. We can be passionate about theology, uh, doctrine, church history, etc., etc., but if it does not produce a compassion and care for people, a mercy upon those who Satan has had his hands upon, we may be way more leafy than we are filled with actual fruit. That our faith is more achievement, self-glory, how come other people aren't doing what I do? Then it is that only one can have the crown, the one who saw me, called me, bled for me, taking my sin as his own upon that cross, dying in my place, rising again, giving me life that he has to do all because he has to. I'm impotent and broken. And perhaps the best way that I can glorify him is by looking upon the broken with the very same heart, and calling forth in the name of Jesus Christ and offering a freedom that only he can offer to the ones who are most enslaved. Now, how does this religious, self-righteous hypocrisy even happen? And I don't think people grow up and desire to be like this, but it happens over time as we grow in knowledge that, that knowledge can either puff us up or humble us more. When we grow in maturity and leave behind sins that used to haunt us, we can either be humbled by God's grace in our life or put out our chest and criticize everyone else who's not like me and up to my level. And when we do that, we become scared of losing our audience because our focus has been upon the eyes of others, not on the eyes of God. We want the applause of people and not the approval of God himself. And religion becomes this outward competition rather than an inward reality. And there it is over time, a sister broken and in need of Christ is she somehow gets more attention than me, more kudos, sings louder, and receives what I think I deserve to re receive. Then we get mad. And we've got to be really careful, church family, that over the years, our religion is not just leaves. We've got to examine ourselves for real fruit and not forget where it is that we each came from, that hearts which began soft can easily harden over time, gradually and stealthily, and we've got to come back to this gospel again and again. If you find <clears throat> that the salvation of others is not a very high priority in your life, and we're calloused or indifferent to the eternal needs around us. We've got to take that seriously. If you're tempted to discriminate that only these kind of people deserve our help and these ones over here don't, we become more and more blind to real need, indifferent, that that brokenness doesn't even move the needle for us. Or if you find that your own salvation doesn't even give you that much joy anymore, I think it may be that we've forgotten the entire gospel, although we can recite it from memory. 
We've forgotten our original condition and how Jesus Christ saved us from it. And we'd hoped here that the synagogue ruler would respond and see himself as broken and as in need as this woman. But sadly, there is no response. Verse 17, and we'll close with this. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Sooner or later, those who are Christ's adversaries, those who are against them, they're all going to be put to shame. But it is also that those who rejoice at the glorious things done by Jesus, they never will. Where does our joy come from? The glorious things Jesus Christ has done. What Jesus does in the hearts of those who are his is altogether glorious, brothers and sisters. And we must never be ashamed to own him as he was not ashamed to own us. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that you have a heart for the broken, uh, the bent over, the crooked, the deformed, the, the sinful, the wicked, the one whom Satan had reigned over. We thank you, God, that you looked upon people like us and had compassion and mercy that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to us and for us. And we ask that by your continuing grace that you would make Jesus everything to us, that we would always uh, remain broken in spirit, uh, that you would lift us up in a way that we ought to be. God, would you, would you make Jesus more and more beautiful in our eyes and give us the joy that only he can give. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.